Disclaimer. This show is in no way intended to express political or religious views. Its purpose is to examine and understand the views of our guests. Our guests have profound ideas and experience, as well as techniques for achieving success and happiness. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Maverick Mondays. I'm your host, Maverick Peters. It is my intention to change your life. I've had the incredible opportunity to sit down with some pretty fantastic people. The individuals who are successful in what they do or extremely positive minded in the way they live their daily lives, those are the people we will be hearing from on this show. Stay tuned for today's guest. Our guest today is Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz. Rabbi Tatz was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa, and was brought up with Jewish traditions. He went to medical school and joined the South African army as a young adult. He later went to what's called yeshiva, or Jewish seminary, in the land of Israel. Rabbi Tatz travels the world teaching and influencing others, as well as enlightening others, in the area of halachic medicine. Rabbi Tatz will explain what that is. He has authored many books on the matter as well. The rabbi is very well known and very busy, and it's a privilege to have him on the podcast. We have the privilege to hear from Rabbi Tatz. Rabbi Tatz, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem. So Rabbi, tell me a little bit about yourself. I took a special interest in medical halakhic material, which means the Jewish legal, you know, religious approach to medical problems, right? For example, life and death decisions in medicine, risk and and benefit, um, terminal care issues, you know, the kind of things that as a doctor I had to grapple with. Um, from an ethical point of view, when I was a young doctor, the first patient I ever had was a young girl who wanted an abortion. And the plumbing and the technicality was easy, but I had to ask myself, you know, is this okay? So when I discovered that Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, has a very organized, cogent, comprehensive approach to those questions, that got me very interested. Medicine and halacha. So halacha is Jewish law. And when it comes to medicine, it can get a little sticky and a little tricky how to go about it ethically in, in guidelines of, of the Torah. So what's an example of, of, a, of a tricky situation that you've had to deal with? Okay, well, there are two types of tricky situation, basically. One is where the situation is intrinsically problematic and tricky, ethical dilemma. The other is when the Jewish guidelines are clear, but they conflict with the ethic or the law of the country that we live in. And that sometimes includes Israel as well. Because Israel is a secular society, and so the laws there are not always in agreement with Jewish religious law. So an ethical dilemma would be uh, not talking about conflict with a country, but simply a, uh, an intrinsic ethical dilemma would be, let's say, where two patients' lives need to be saved, and there's a question of which one you save when you, cannot, you can only save one. So let's say you have only one machine, a ventilator or resuscitator, and two patients need it, and you have to make a decision about who comes first. So that's a very well-known ethical problem known as triage. And in Jewish law, there are very clear hierarchy of, of principles. So working, and, and there's no con- necessarily conflict with the law of the land. I'm working in a country, I'm working in an ER, two patients come in, or I stop at an accident by the side of the road, two people are bleeding to death, I have one pair of hands. So there the question arises, who comes first, right? So 
the principles we use are we have very very well organized principles um, you know just to give you a little humorous note sometimes when I present this problem in America and I say which patient would you say first the American doctors say it depends which one has insurance <laughs> well you know that's not correct from a Jewish point of view right but we do have a problem of who you who you save and I'd point out to you that this problem is not only an individual problem it's also a societal problem societies don't have enough money you know for all the treatments that we'd like to give everyone no society not even the United States has enough dialysis and, and transplantation facilities so this is a pervasive problem even at a, at, a, at, a, at a political level is a country permitted to spend money on its parks and museums if it doesn't have enough emergency care facilities right so this is a very pervasive problem and all societies feel this this question I live in England now if you're over a certain age basically you will you will not get transplanted kidney transplant because age is a criterion right and they don't have enough for everyone so some of the Jewish principles of course this is not we don't have time to go into all of them but some of the principles are one of the most basic principles in Jewish law is that if one patient's closer to you and one is more distant, then you're required to treat the patient who's closer. And the reason is because there's a principle in Jewish law that states that you may not bypass a mitzvah. In other words, you have a biblical obligation of saving life. As you approach that patient, you have no right to walk past him. So if you've got two people, one close and one further, all else being equal, of course, you'd have to treat the one who's closer to you. Another principle would be if they're equidistant, one's your brother and one's a stranger, you'd have to treat your brother. And the reason is because the Bible says, the Torah says, do not ignore your flesh. So if you have, to, of course, this would not apply in a hospital, because if you're working in a hospital or healthcare setting, you have no right to use the facilities for your own relative. But if you'd be walking in the desert and two people would be, and the reason you save your relative first is because the Bible says so. It's the same reason why you're required to give charity to a family member before a stranger, or a neighbor or a friend or someone who lives in your city both Jewish and non-Jewish causes. And so that would be a, a question. And if your listeners are thinking, they will be immediately be faced with a logical question, right? The question would be this. The first principle is, if someone's closer to you physically, you need to treat them first. The second principle is, if one's related to you, you need to treat them first. A moment's thought will show you that the obvious next logical question, and I'm sure I'm sure you have already grasped what this is. If your relative is the one further away. Beautiful. I see you are a real halachic black belt. <laughs> That's correct. What happens when the priorities conflict? Which priority takes priority? Right. So do you treat the one who's closer because that's the, the biblical obligation? Do you treat the one who's further because he's your brother and that's a biblical obligation? In fact, the law is, in this case, you bypass the closer person and treat your, and treat your, your relative first. And I will leave your listeners with a challenge, trying to figure out why that is, and I hope it keeps them up all night. Okay, I'm sure it will. When it comes to making these kinds of, of decisions that may conflict with the government or the country that you're in, Right. So how do you reconcile that? First of all, I only mentioned a couple of criteria, but of course there are many others. Right. If one patient is terminally ill and one is not, then the salvageable patient comes first. Young or old, the general approach is the young comes before the old. When it comes to a man or a woman, there's no difference. Uh, unless there's differential suffering. For example, the Talmud says that if, women are, if people are captured and we can only ransom back a limited number, we'd have to ransom the women before the men because they almost certainly will be sexually molested. And therefore, there's differential suffering. The Code of Jewish Law says that if the terrorists are homosexuals, then you'd have to save the men first. Wow. So the point is not whose life is more valuable, but the question is who is subject to more, to more trauma. Right. So those are some of the others. Now, you asked me about a secular society where there's a conflict. So this is an interesting problem. 
there's a basic law in Judaism that the law of the country governs you from a religious point of view as well. That's known as Dina de Malchus Adina. In other words, the law of the country binds a Jew. So if you if you um, uh, speed, if you're traveling down a road where there's a 30 mile an hour limit and you travel at 40, you are breaking the law of the land and Jewish law. Because Jewish law requires you to obey the law of the land. The problem arises when a secular country makes laws that are antithetical to Judaism. So if the country tells me I need to perform an abortion where it's illicit in Jewish terms, or a sterilization, or switch off a machine that's keeping a person alive, these are all in direct contradiction to Jewish law, then I'd have to refuse. The way we handle that in practice, again, this is a complicated subject, but the way we handle it in practice is if they order me to do something that is against my religion. For example, in Jewish law, you cannot switch off a ventilator, thereby killing the patient. Not that every patient has to be put onto a machine in the first place. But if someone's dependent on a life-saving modality, you may not switch it off and kill them. If I'm ordered to do so in a secular society by a hospital or by an attending who's my superior, then I would have to refuse to do that. The practical way to solve those problems is if it's going to be done anyway, and they require me to do it, I stand back and say, find someone else. And that's perfectly acceptable in secular democracies. They respect the right of minorities to observe their religion. Catholic doctors will not do certain procedures. Catholic nurses will not hand out contraceptions. Contraception. So since a secular society tolerates its minority view, they, and I've never been in a situation, not in the United States, not in South Africa, not in England where I live now, where they accuse me of being immoral. They accuse me of uh, being too expensive. Or they say I'm causing the patient to live longer than necessary. But they've never accused me of being immoral. They can disagree vehemently with me, but they almost always agree that we as Orthodox Jews occupy the higher moral ground. So they may disagree, but they're certainly not trying to force me to do things their way. And therefore, a Jewish doctor in most cases is able to stand back and say, listen, find someone else. I don't have to lie down on the floor kicking and screaming until the police drag me away. I can say that this is against my religion. I will not perform this termination or whatever the, whatever the forbidden action is. I stand back, they find someone else to do it, and if it's going to be done anyway, I'd do it. That's usually the practical way to resolve those issues. But we have a basic underlying ethic that has never changed. Yeah, for sure. What's more interesting in Jewish law is not when the ethic changes, but when technology and issues come up. For example, now we're dealing with stem cell cloning, uh, we're dealing with three parent babies, we're dealing with um, surrogacy where one woman carries an egg from another woman. So there are Talmudic precedents for these. The, the principles are found in the Talmud, but it takes the halachic black belts, I would say, the, the, broad, mind, the, the broad shoulders of uh, Jewish legal authorities to decide how the ancient Jewish principles define these new technologies. One of the latest is PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I'll be speaking about that tomorrow, in fact. That is where we can now prevent genetic diseases even before conception. And of course, the misuse or one of the broad uses of those technologies, people come forward and say, we have a genetic problem. We want to be sure that our child does not have it. That's fine. But what happens when people come and they say, we want to use this to ensure that we have a boy or a girl? You may be surprised to hear that one of the latest challenges has been in, in uh, this is not a Jewish problem, but in the United States, there are two groups who have genetic abnormalities suing for the right to produce abnormal babies. Really? They want, they want to use PGD to guarantee that their children will have a genetic abnormality. Which are these? People with profound congenital deafness. They say, we want babies who are deaf like us. We are not in any way inferior. We have alternative senses which are highly developed. We feel we want children deaf like us. You have no right to tell us that this is wrong. The courts are having a very difficult time trying to decide whether that's ethical. Right. And the other situation is achondroplastic dwarfs. You know, they call them the little people. 
They're about three feet tall. You often see them in, in movies and various other circumstances. They want to use PGD to produce dwarf children. They have three reasons for this. One is they say there's nothing wrong with us. We're very satisfied the way we are. It's wrong of you to call us abnormal. Secondly, would you like to be three foot six and have to discipline a five foot ten teenager? <laughs> that wouldn't work out so well. And thirdly, our homes are designed for little people. We have bathrooms and door handles. It's very inconvenient for us to raise a normal height child. And therefore, they're suing in the courts for the right to use PGD to guarantee children like them. And it's a very interesting ethical dilemma. For sure. Not a, that question not been asked in the Jewish world. Is the, these are the sort of um, brave new world uh, questions that we are encountering at the moment. I've limited myself much more to the things that a non-religious, non-religious Jewish doctor will have to encounter, such as triage dilemmas, terminal care issues, the kinds of things that you don't have to think of yourself as religious and you'll have to deal with anyway. So I published a, w- a book about that a couple of years ago that's called Dangerous Disease and Dangerous Therapy. That's a comprehensive detailed textbook on triage problems, culling in pregnancy, you know, when a multiple, multiple pregnancies, one or two babies need to be destroyed so the others can survive. Um, uh, terminal care, according to Jewish law, when may you withdraw treatment, when may you not, all more or less dealing with the critical issues. How much risk is it acceptable to, uh, say, the limb? Um, what level of risk has to be disclosed to the patient? Very interesting question. Let's say you have a patient who needs an, an operation, a serious operation, and you know that they're a little anxious, over-anxious. And if you read them the riot act, so to speak, of all the risks and complications, they'll probably refuse, which you know is going to be against their best interest. So perhaps you should paternalistically not disclose some of the risks. Now, that's an interesting problem. First of all, you are withholding information. And secondly, you're probably falling foul of the law of the land. So that's a fascinating question. The basic approach we take to that question is, without going into all the background, if the risk of death of such a procedure would be less than one in a thousand, Jewish law would say you probably don't have to disclose it. The reason being that most normal people would not refuse a necessary operation on the basis of that risk. Therefore, you can assume that your patient will feel the same. If there's a risk of serious harm of less than one in a hundred, you would not need to disclose it if you know the patient will make an unwise decision based on that information. Now, I'm not talking about whether the law of the land requires it. I'm talking about uh, simply in Jewish law. So these are some of the considerations that you know need to be thought through uh, from a halachic Jewish legal point of view, things like confidentiality. What about being? What about maintaining confidentiality when you know something about your patient, which they wish to be confidential but may harm someone else? They have an infectious disease. They're living with a partner. The partner doesn't know about it. You do know about it. That's a vexed issue in the law of the land, and it's also a difficult issue in Judaism. So there's, there's no shortage of um, uh, fascinating ethical dilemmas that we need to approach from a Jewish point of view. And I'm asked these questions all the time by patients and by doctors who are practicing. Where does the rabbi see himself? You know, the rabbi wears many hats. Doctor, rabbi, former army man. Um, where does the rabbi see himself as his role in the world? That's a good question. I've always approached that question by, I have a method of guiding people towards their own uh, fulfillment, and it's what I use myself, and that is to define a circle of your uniqueness. Draw a circle, put in the talents that are unique to you, draw a picture of your own unique abilities to contribute in the world, right? Have the courage to surgically excise and put outside the circle the things that are not your talents. Or, or to give you a little more detail, you construct a picture which has two bases. The, base, the first base is being a decent human being. That's not negotiable, which means consideration and concern. The second base, if you're Jewish, is there's certain unique additional Jewish requirements. It's not negotiable for a Jew. 
And then there's the circle. The circle is your unique style, what you can bring to the world that no one else can. And if you do that accurately, it's a very joyful experience because you see a picture of what is unique and special about you. And you will also lose jealousy. Because if you, if you notice you don't have a tool that someone else is given as a gift, if God didn't give that to you, it's not, you, you, you know, must mean that you don't need it. If, if I am a construction foreman and you're a worker on the construction site and I place you at a certain point in the construction site with a bag of tools, I don't need to say a word to you. Observe where I placed you, observe what needs to be constructed, observe which tools I gave you, and you'll know the work you have to do in the world. So if God has put you into the world at a certain time in history, the world, in case you hadn't noticed, needs a tremendous amount of building. Right? We, a world fraught with danger and misery and, and, and human unnecessary trauma. So you draw a circle of your own unique abilities. Are you empathic? Are you intelligent? Are you academic? Are you more scientific? Are you more artistic? You put all those things into the circle, and you'll be given quite a clear picture of the work that you can do. I wrote a book for teenagers that details this. That's called The Thinking Jewish Teenager's Guide to Life. It has the exercise of drawing a circle and encourages young people to actually make a graphic picture of what it is that's unique and special about them. Why do you think you're so impactful? Like Let's go back to your previous question. When I do the circle for myself, mm-hmm. right, it's very clear to me. I was given a, a, a significant gift as a young person where my talents were very clear to me, right? So it was very clear at medical school, for example, I was not particularly gifted at biochemistry or statistics or, uh, you know, organic chem. I mean, I was okay, but I was no, no great checks. But I was much better at people skills and communication and clinical examination, helping families through traumas and difficult, you know, there was, I was much better at that. So it was very clear to me which types of medicine I would be better. I never had to struggle with that, right? I knew I was not going to be a pathologist or a a lab worker doing, you know, complicated biochemistry that just wasn't my skill. So once you draw the circle for yourself, and I knew that I loved communicating clearly, um, relatively speaking, it is a better skill of mine than, you know, many other things. I'm not that great at mathematics. I'm not that great at, uh, you know, um, a lot of things I'm not good at. But I'm much better at communicating. And uh, one of the things I love most is trying to take a subject and make it as clear as possible so somebody can see it with crystal clarity. So what's an example of that? I mean, some of these, some of these topics are extremely you know, detailed and difficult to understand. Well, the truth is that the medical legal aspects are much easier to communicate because you're dealing with a factual, textual subject. Okay. But when it comes to mystical and spiritual and philosophical concepts, it's much more of an effort. So for example, when I have to give a talk and I'm jet-lagged or exhausted, I find it quite easy to give a medical, legal, but if I have to give an analysis of uh, free will or the evidence for Jewish faith, right, or the complicated question of how God knows in advance what you're going to choose, or these seemingly intractable philosophical subjects, right, it's enormous effort to communicate subjects that people haven't thought about in a professional fashion and make the subject clear. So I love to do that, but it takes a lot of effort and it takes a willingness to be open. I would say that most students' mistake is they come to a subject with a preconceived notion. They're not ready to hear something new. A real student is someone who's prepared to have their concepts shattered and rebuilt. So you have to do that in a gentle way. Show a person that past. possibly there's something they don't know. They might be able to learn from you. So if you ask about my success, on the one hand, I have been successful in what I've done. On the other hand, that's because I cheat. <laughs> I choose only the things that I'm better at, so I'm more likely to be successful. The things that the rabbi is not so good at, does that mean that there's no time for them? Or is there, is there time to work on them? Well, there's a very clear answer to that. So let's say I'm an impatient person, or I get angry easily. 
I have to work on that. There's no, that's not optional. So if I am a lazy person, for example, I've, I tend to be lazy. If I sit down to study on my own, I fall asleep. That I, the, the life is too short for that. So I need to work on that. And I have methods of working on that. But if it comes to something I'm not good at, that I don't need to be good at, I, I'm not going to be the world's greatest chess player or tennis player or golfer or, uh, you know, I'm not going to be that. So I don't spend time on those unless I need them for recreation or some ancillary purpose. But it's a waste of time working. You can't do it all. You are, no one is going to be the world's greatest champion at everything. And therefore, it pays to isolate your talent. And which gives the rabbi most satisfaction? Working in the medicine field, working as, as a rabbi? Although I love medicine and I miss not being much more involved in clinical medicine, many years ago I decided that my life was going to gravitate more to the Jewish uh, philosophical, rabbinic and legal field. And the reason I chose that was I felt there were many people who could be doctors as good or better than me, but much fewer people who can communicate Judaism in a fascinating and you know um, appealing way so i gravitated more into that mondays aren't always the best day coming from the weekend right when it's relaxed and it's it's a break from the week and now we got to go back to monday does the rabbi ever find himself in a situation like that and if so how does he get through it and how can other people get through it you mean a difficult monday yeah for or sure. a tragic tuesday right or a weepy wednesday okay well hopefully the week doesn't get that bad <laughs> or a traumatic thursday right yeah we have all of those Yes, we find ourselves in those situations all the time. I'll tell you a quick Jewish methodology for dealing with those. Our approach to those situations is not to try to work on yourself internally. It's to make an external draw. For example, if you're feeling down, to sit in a room and tell yourself to be happy is not going to work. You become more depressed. Put yourself in a situation that requires happiness. Do something that draws out of you, right? For example, do something for somebody else. Put yourself in a situation. We have a Jewish principle of psychology that states that the externality must awaken the internality. So if you're depressed and, and feeling down and unable to move, you get into a situation where you're required to do it. Someone, in, someone needs you. You put yourself in a situation that generates a good mood. You use the external. A depressed person, for example, the, the, the solution to depression is to get moving. You cannot be depressed while you're constructing. You can be in pain. You can be weeping in agony, but you can't be depressed. Once you're being, while you're being productive, you cannot be depressed. So when I find myself in those situations, either laziness or uh, negative mood, I will choose to do something that from the external will awaken the required response. I think the most important guidance probably your listeners could take out of this discussion is probably to become more self-aware. Once you know more about yourself, you can approach life in a much more meaningful fashion. If you happen to be Jewish, then you have a, a, a many thousand year tradition of wisdom and insight into these things. Combine self-knowledge with Jewish wisdom, you'll be a winner. Rabbi, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Each episode here on the Maverick Mondays podcast is about 30 minutes long. At the end of each episode, we briefly recap and highlight some of the important points discussed. What really struck me in my conversation with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, the area of his expertise is something that the average person would completely crumble under that kind of pressure. Yet, the rabbi is calm, cool, and collective, and handles it with intelligence and utter grace. Here are some great takeaways from our conversation. Number one, nobody's perfect. It sounds almost silly to say, we all know it, and it's it's something that we, we should probably be reminded of time and again. Two, If you're feeling down, don't lock yourself in a room and say, feel better, feel better, feel better. That's not going to happen. It's not going to work. 
you have to get out and help someone. You have to stay positive, you have to stay moving, and you have to stay productive. And three, become self-aware. Learn about your assets and learn about your limitations, learn about all your strengths and weaknesses, and grow based on everything that you discover about yourself. The next step is for you to do your part. We've discussed some real interesting stuff on this episode of Maverick Mondays. However, if you truly want to grow and become the best version of you, and yeah, I mean the best version of you, listen to the episode once, twice, take some notes. This way, you can utilize the information that was discussed and you can really take it to heart. Thank you for joining us.